Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of GUCast, which is one of our special Congress highlight episodes. I'm here in Melbourne. Renew is actually in Kuala Lumpur at a meeting, but I'm very pleased to say that we're joined by friend of the podcast, Michael Hoffman, who's one of our clinical advisors, and he's over at the EANM meeting, the European Association of Nuclear Medicine um, in Vienna, I think he's in. But let's, uh, let's go over to Michael and have a chat with him and see who he has found at the world's premier nuclear medicine meeting. Michael, um, good morning to you in, uh, is it Vienna? Real pleasure to be here. I found two of our amazing colleagues, one who's uh, well known to the GUCAST community, I think, Professor Ken Herman from uh, Essen in Germany, and, and one of our own, Dr. Kerry Jewell, who has not been on GUCAST before. Uh, she's one of our outstanding trainees, who's no longer a trainee because she got her letters just a few days ago in the mail. So she's now officially a nuclear medicine specialist in Australia. Congratulations. Thank you. So, uh, Congratulations, Kerry. Welcome, Kerry, and welcome, Ken, and thanks for taking the time. And you can see EANM happening in the background. It's actually a huge conference. How many people are here, Ken? So we hope more than 7,000 people, at least last year. Of course, it's still day one. We don't know yet, but I'm pretty confident that we will be, again, much bigger than any other nuclear medicine conference in the world. I heard an incredible statistic that there are actually 14,000 people here. This sounds almost too good to be true, but I would take it any time. Maybe that includes the virtual registrants. Uh, and Kerry, this is your first international nuclear medicine meeting? This is my first international medical conference of any kind, so it's a nice one to start with. Wow. Yeah, that, that's fantastic, Michael. And why, why should we dedicate an episode of GUCAST to a nuclear medicine meeting? I mean, it's not that many years ago when there was no GU oncology at the EANM meeting, but t give us a flavor of how much GU oncology you have at the EANM nowadays. Yeah, I think that that's true, Ken, uh, Declan. 10 years ago, maybe no, 15 years ago, there was no GU oncology at EANM. No one had even heard of prostate cancer. Maybe we were doing bone scans and sodium fluoride scans, but there was no prostate cancer session. Whereas now, I think it's the dominant topic. Yeah, I've got the stats on that, Declan. So there are seven independent sessions that are featuring prostate cancer. And of the 1,000 posters that are being presented, 108 of them are featuring prostate cancer. And there's 5E poster sessions as well. So um, a fair, fair chunk of the conference is now dedicated to prostate cancer and GU. And when we say GU, it's now extending beyond prostate cancer. Uh, I asked both Ken and Kerry to come up with some highlights from looking at the abstract books and going to talks, what's new at EANM, what's coming next. And and Ken did the homework very carefully and sent me a, a very, very long summary. Maybe you can summarize what, what are the highlights for you in GU Oncology? So Declan, I still love prostate cancer the most, but I try to focus on something else in prostate cancer. And actually its target is CA9 or carboanitrase 9. It's a very exciting target. There are a couple, I think up to nine uh, uh, posters and, and oral presentations about this topic. We talk about four different ligands, it includes an antibody, two small molecules and a mini protein. And each of them really try to use CA9 expression in clear cell renal cell cancer uh, for diagnostic imaging, but also for therapy. And now the kicker, even so it's not a geocast on top of it, it even seems to be a very interesting target in colorectal cancer. So uh, we use our great friendship with urology to expand uh, beyond prostate and then potentially even 
tackle colorectal cancer together. Amazing. Wow, this is exciting. And is this is this just for imaging or do you see this for theranostics as well? So on a, on a clinical level, we have seen so far only imaging data. But of course, the real idea, the play behind it is to use it as a, as a therapeutic target. And, uh, and of course, we are very, I mean, also something I would like to, to hear from you, uh, Michael, you have also seen one of the compounds. What do you think? Don't we see SUV values we have rarely seen for any other compounds? Yeah, I agree. This is a really exciting topic. So Declan, can I ask you a question? Are you going to go back and start doing uh, the robotic surgery on kidneys? I think you may have to go back beyond prostate and start doing kidneys. <laughs> Well, I'm glad to say others do that in our practice, Michael, as you know, but I, I'm full-time, like Ken, I just love prostate cancer. Um, so, yeah, what other highlights have you found there, Michael? Uh, of course, we normally hear about novel tracers or novel applications of theranostics. Um, tell us what else has caught your eye so far. Uh, what's caught my eye is the number of prospective trials reading out and clinical trials. Uh, this was also sort of highlighted in the opening is that 10 years ago there were very few clinical trials presented at EANM whereas now the results I think of more than 150 clinical trials are being presented here either primary endpoints or you know longer follow-up you know so our group we're presenting both lutectomy and the 54-month follow-up of the pro-PSMA study but there are many groups presenting prospective trials now in nuclear medicine so this is a big change. I think it's an important change. And uh, Ken was involved in a large questionnaire of young nuclear medicine physicians coming in. Can you tell us a bit about that? So one of the biggest challenges uh, in nuclear medicine, obviously, is attract young talent. I think it's a big challenge for everyone, but for nuclear medicine being a small field, it's even more important. And to really get better, the first step is to understand uh, how do the young guys really uh, think? What do they care for? What do they want to explore in the future? So we performed uh, inspired by the ENM Oncology Committee, uh, a survey which was actually published yesterday online in the European Journal of Nuclear Medicine, helping us to better understand how can we really attract the young people to nuclear medicine. And this being said, we have a very young person next to us, and I would like to ask, how can we really get you excited for nuclear medicine and make you stay more than just the three years of PhD? Yeah, sure. So I think having such a supportive uh, workplace like I do at Peter Mac makes it a very attractive place to come to. And then the enthusiasm and the, the mateship in the department makes it really easy to stay. Uh, and then obviously working uh, in, in world leading uh, clinical research and, and being inspired by the masters uh, is, is helpful as well. So that's led me to be doing a PhD starting next year. And I wouldn't have thought about that uh, if I had not been in that environment, which has been so, so supportive. It's very interesting because one of the key messages we really had is mentoring. And if you have good mentors, mentors who really have the passion, like you two, right? Then this is what happens. You have someone young who's really doing it. I think it's also one of the key messages of our survey. I fully agree with you. And I think another key message of the survey that caught my eye was interest in research, that the young people coming into nuclear medicine are not just interested in clinical practice, but that they are coming into it because of the research opportunities. Uh, this is unique in nuclear medicine. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think uh, this year I've benefited from being the Theranostics Fellow at Peter McCullum. So I've been back in the clinic. And I think when you're doing that each day, uh, you start to think about how you can be doing it better, which naturally leads to the research questions. So being able to work between clinical whilst exploring some of those questions is a re really great dynamic for workplace. 
So we, we compete for young talent, right? And and one of the USPs, how we like to call it, uh, compared, for example, to radiology is really this. Is one of them is really we do research. We do much more real research as uh, radiology. And the second thing is that we treat patients. And we really need to build on these two USPs to make sure that we really get the greatest brains into nuclear medicine. I fully agree what you said. And in Germany, do you have nuclear medicine specialists that are doing higher degrees, like a master's or a PhD? Or is this unusual? So the, the, the system is a little bit different. Uh, uh, we, we do have people who are really excited to do long-term research. But I also have to be honest, uh, the number of people who really want to do this is not increasing over the years. So we have to also build more the, 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 the work conditions around them. We are competing with private practice. We are competing with industry. Uh, we need to make sure that we really can offer them not only a very nice working environment, but we also have to make sure that it's uh, interesting for them to stay in the long run. But yes, we do have this. Have we executed as good as we should have? No. Michael, can I ask you a question about um, PSMA tracers? So I remember being at EANM myself last year, seeing these new PSMA tracers coming through. Mostly around the world, we're using gallium PSMA 11 and fluorinated PSMA. But I hear about this RH hybrid tracer and other tracers in Amsterdam. Are, are there new tracers on the block for PSMA imaging that we should be watching out for? So I actually do some homework on this. So you're absolutely right. We, we are in a very comfortable position now of having a couple of tracers FDA and EMA approved. The, the gallium PSMA 11 is approved by FDA and EMA. The RHPSMA is now FDA approved. The 1007, which is also a FLU18 label tracer, is now at least uh, approved in a couple of countries in, in Europe. So yes, we do see these new tracers. I still think it's a class of imaging PSMA. There are differences which are subtle, and we can spend hours and hours talking uh, about it. But Michael, I don't know what you do with your clinicians, but I try to tell my clinicians, if you get one of these novel generation PSMA tracers, you're fine. Uh, the subtle difference is something which your expert needs to know, but I don't think that we, I, I would not uh, try to to yeah, ask my urologist, Boris Halashik, for the subtle differences of a virus flu 18 traces. But what do you think, Michael? Yeah, look, I think the gallium PSMA 11 and DCFPYL, which are FDA approved, are very, very similar and equivalent. And we use both at Peter Mac, and I'm comfortable switching between them. They're almost identical. I worry about PSMA 1007 because of the nonspecific bone uptake so this is not fda approved and now rh psma 7.3 look it looks at least as good we don't have any experience with it but i wonder does it have the false positive bone uptake of 1007 i just don't know because i haven't seen the the data do you have any clinical experience with that ken so we don't uh, i'm not personally not uh, if you look at the data also at the approval approval leading data it's not as good as what we have seen for example for pyl or if we have seen for gallium psma 11 however Doing a lot of 1007, I can tell you, we need a certain learning curve, but at a certain point, you know how to deal with these unspecific bone uptakes. So this is my concern, is we should now test against gallium PSMA 11 or DCFPYL when you have a new agent. We shouldn't compare to CT and bone scan. So what's happening is, oh, I'm a company and I have my new PSMA tracer. I'll do a trial to show that it's better than a CT bone scan. I mean, it's not hard to do that because CT bone scan is so poor. Now that we have at least two, three FDA approved tracer, if you come up with a new tracer, I think you should have to do a head-to-head -head trial compared to an approved PSMA agent in order to get your agent on the market. What do you think about that? 
it absolutely makes sense. Uh, of course, it's very difficult because uh, the companies have a certain interest to get the fastest and easiest and cheapest path with approval. From a medical point of view, this is what we do, right? We refer to what we know. We know now PSM11 very well. And if I don't see a significant additional value, either on cost or on quality, I'm not switching. Very good. So now the other thing we uh, asked Michael to do while he was um, at the EANM was catch up with a few other people around the conference. So we're going to cut away for a few moments and have a listen to the package that Michael put together wandering around the EANM chatting to some other nuclear medicine specialists before we go back live uh, to Michael, uh, Ken and Jerry, Kerry to wrap up. here with Francesco Cecchi, who's director at the European Oncology Institute in Milan. Uh, great pleasure to cover a little bit of EANM 23. Uh, Francesco was chair of the prostate cancer staging session that was just run and also presented in this session and had to introduce himself halfway through the session. Uh, tell us about your presentation. Um, thank you, Michael. Actually, it was a very nice uh, session and very exciting. Um, today we discuss about the use of a new uh, drop, uh, drop probe for dropping probe for uh, prostate cancer, and is um, a probe that is uh, dedicated for detecting positron rather than gamma rays. So it's a new technology, it's a new medical device that actually is probably changing the practice in prostate cancer staging. So we've had an interesting uh, probe at Peter Mac. But I think the probe that we were considering to use, we would image uh, uh, differently to this probe. How is your probe different? Um, in this case, we still use PSMA, but it's gallium PSMA. So we injected the exacting, the same radio tracer that we inject for PET imaging. We inject the gallium PSMA directly in the surgery theater. So it's an intravenous injection of uh, gallium PSMA in the surgery theater, and immediately we start with the surgery procedure. So the probes that we were thinking about, we inject technetium yep. PSMA, which is not really used in clinical practice, and then the probe is measuring the gamma, a bit like a conventional gamma camera, but your probe is like a, like a PET camera? Uh, yes, kind of. Actually, the probe is able to detect the positron decay. So actually, the, the, good, uh, the strength of this device is, is that you can detect the signal when you are very, very close and there is no background signal. So tell us a little bit about the early results that you presented here. Um, actually, the, uh, we started a phase two trial. This is an interim analysis, but so far we assess a sensitivity over the 75% and a specificity around 90%. So the device uh, was uh, correctly detected the presence of lymph node metastasis and the overall procedure was feasible without side effects detected. And the probe is used for robotic surgery, obviously, not, not for lapros conventional laparoscopic. Um, it can be ad adapted also for laparoscopic, but in our study we use it for uh, the robotic surgery with a drop-in system. Very good. Well, I think Declan Murphy, uh, director of our uh, GU Oncology I think he's coming to visit uh, Milan shortly to look at some of these early results. And you are also chair of this 
prostate cancer staging session. Uh, what were the other highlights or takeaway messages that you got out of this session? I think this year we had the pleasure to listen to the very nice presentation, one from you and the other one from the colleague of UCLA, uh, about the follow-up data of uh, PSMA PET in staging prostate cancer. In this case, we have the chance to assess for the first time that PSMA PET is a real prognostic biomarker and is able to uh, correlate with the oncological outcome. So, very important result from this side. Yeah, I think what struck me in the session is there was a lot of prospective trials now being done in the nuclear medicine community, which five, ten years ago, everything was retrospective, but now we have a lot of prospective trials and some sub-analyses from longer-term follow-up. Yes, absolutely agree. And uh, the other important topic that we discussed was the importance of PSMA-PET as a um, technique that you can use uh, together with MRI to diagnose prostate cancer. Now MRI is still the standard of reference for diagnosed cancer-specific uh, um, prost um, prostate cancer and uh, in my opinion PSMA PET will help to uh, detect uh, more lesion and to be uh, an additional technique for diagnosed prostate cancer. Well thank you so much Francesco, thanks for joining us on GUcast and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very much. We've just come out of the session on what's new in prostate cancer and I brought a few stars that are going to tell us. We've got two presenters and the chair of the session. So we might start with you, uh, Dr. Philip Kuo from University of Arizona. You gave some really great update of the vision trial. You've previously presented prognostic biomarkers from the gallium PSMA PET CTs. This is a topic that's really dear to us at Peter Mac, but you never presented the control arm. So you couldn't present the predictive biomarkers but you just did that now, so what, what did you find? Yeah, great, well thank you so much for the opportunity, Mike, and as you said, now we have the predictive biomarker significance, and of course specifically predictive to response to the lutetium PSMA 617. You know, to start off with, we made sure that the baseline parameters of SUV mean, max tumor volume, and tumor load were similar between the two groups, standard of care and the treatment arm, and they were similar, so it makes, uh, makes the results valid for the next assessment, which is that, again, at every uh, quartile, when we repeated the quartile analysis, from the bottom to the top quartile, every patient benefited not only in radiographic progression-free survival, but also overall survival. We also extended the study and went beyond the quartile analysis, which was done for the FDA-mandated substudy, and did a more continuous analysis which showed actually, particularly in overall survival, that it was a really linear function that with almost every unit increase in whole body SUV mean, there was an improvement in the hazard ratio for overall survival. So still very strong results that showed the, now the predictive power of that gallium PSMA 11 baseline PET for response to lutetium PSMA 617. And a common question that we get is, what's the best parameter? Is it SUV max, volume, SUV mean, or some surrogate of it, SUV mean times volume? 
and I, I think you're confirming with your data that it's SUV mean. Yes. And so we looked at all those different parameters. It was SUV mean, and easy enough, it's actually the whole body SUV mean. So when you broke it down into the different uh, anatomical regions, really it was the aggregate of it all, the whole body SUV mean, which is the average of all the voxels of the segmented PSMA-positive disease, as has been found in other very powerful studies. And I really like the way you did it as a continuous variable. It, it really showed that it's a powerful predictive biomarker. I'd like to move on to you, uh, uh, Bustian. Uh, you presented some data from the bullseye trial. Yeah. We've got an interest in this uh, early castration-sensitive space too, and earlier use of lutetium PSMA. We have our radiation oncologists really into a lot of SABRE. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the bullseye trial and what you found? Of course. Uh, thank you for having me here on this podcast. Um, so we initiated the bullseye trial uh, because a lot of patients have disease recurrence following um, external beam radiotherapy or surgery. And um, well, nowadays these patients are all detected by PSMA PET imaging. Um, and we had the question whether we can also use lutetium PSMA to treat these patients um, and to postpone androgen deprivation therapy. Um, a lot of patients complain about initiating uh, androgen deprivation therapy. There's a lot of side effects uh, associated with. And um, well, we initiated this trial you know, a few years back. Um, it's uh, randomized uh, in a one-to-one -one ratio with a control arm that we only do watchful waiting. And the treatment arm receives up to four cycles of lutetium PSMA. And we observed that um, basically all patients in the control arm went on and to start basically androgen deprivation therapy. But uh, the majority of patients in the treatment arm that receive lutetium PSMA are um, yeah, deferring from uh, uh, androgen deprivation therapy. And it's a very promising outcome for these patients. Um, uh, patients had only like mild toxicity from the treatment. And uh, we even had a few patients that had a complete biochemical and imaging response. Um, and that really uh, endorses us to continue this, uh, yeah, this field of uh, oligorecurrent uh, prostate cancer. And uh, you're from the Netherlands and I take it you are about to start maybe radiation oncology training after doing a postdoc in nuclear medicine. So will, will you be competing with your radiation oncologists in the future? Well, uh, maybe if I'm out of a job in the future, maybe I can end up in the nuclear medicine field. Uh, you know? Excellent. And I also like the way in your study you had a adapted design for lutetium PSMA. I think you gave two cycles yeah. and then you had some sort of trigger where you would give another two cycles. Exactly. How did you decide whether to give two or four cycles? Yeah, so our goal was basically to get a complete response. So we did a uh, PSMA PET after the second cycle, so f four weeks after the second cycle, to see if there was still uptake in lesions. And uh, if the patients had minimal toxicity and there was still uptake in the lesions, we continued with two more cycles. And uh, I can tell you, basically all patients received two more cycles. And it's also safe to do uh, what we found. Great. And uh, Dr. Wolfgang Fendler from Essen. Uh, we have a lot of collaborations with your centre and you had the honour of chairing the session. Uh, what were your takeaway messages? Because there were some other talks as well. It was a packed crowd. I mean, the room was f fully packed. Uh, what was new in prostate cancer for you? 
It was really high attention and I, I, I'm very fortunate to chair the session today. We have seen very high level talks um, expanding, going from um, the advanced prostate cancer, from secondary analysis from the vision trial, but also going to other indications. As you have just mentioned, the bullseye trial with patients with castration sensitive prostate cancer, or the lutectomy trial going even earlier where PCMA therapy is used before um, resection of the patients. And it really felt like today theranostics, PCMA theranostic in prostate cancer is getting real. Because in all these trials, we had imaging as a selector and imaging as a risk stratification for patients. And it, in, in most of the trials, it really was central to patient selection and it really worked in, in that it predicted outcome or it was associated with, with outcome in the patients. This was the case for the vision trial, um, secondary analysis where SUV means so the target expression level was really tightly bound to, to the result, to the outcome of patients. And this is also the case for the lutectomy trial, for example, where you see and where you report that patients with a high expression level, they respond much more favorable to disease. So it really, I, I get a feeling that uh, there's, there's a lot of relevant information also for us for the future clinic and uh, for communication with our clinician, uh, clinician colleagues that the combination of imaging and therapy is really working and it's important for the future. Wonderful. Well, thanks for taking time out of your really busy schedule at EANM. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Thank you very Thank much. You. So that was fantastic. Thanks very much, Michael, for taking the time to uh, track down those various other leaders. I must say, EANM meeting, I went to it myself last year. It's a fantastic place for non-nuclear medicine specialists to go, especially for us interested in GU oncology. Um, I bumped into um, lots of my favorite urologists, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists at the EANM last year. And I think you, your specialty do put on a great meeting, but thanks for chatting to those folk. Um, and we'll hand back to you for summing up live from Vienna. Uh, thanks so much, Declan. It's it's really great to have a live cross to Vienna for GUcast with EANM. I think we're going to have to make this an annual event. Uh, we hope you come back in person next year. I think we're going to be in Germany next year for EANM. It's going to be in in Hamburg. Uh, I had the luxury of going to EAU this year in Milan, uh, so it's nice to have this crosstalk between EAU and uh, EANM. Do you have any thoughts on that EAU EANM interaction, Ken? I mean, it's one of our uh, drivers, main drivers, and and actually, Mike, you know this very well. Declan knows very well as well. One of the biggest uh, challenges we have ahead of us is to standardize the way we report PSMA PET. This is something we can only do together, and I'm very proud and happy that you two and a couple of other peoples are working on this, actually driven by EAU with a huge support of ENM. This is really what keeps us alive. That's why I'm looking forward even to real cancer, even so that prostate cancer is at my dear heart. And it's great to have the next generation on GUcast. I think, uh, you know, you're probably the predominant audience listening to podcasts and uh, YouTube. I wonder if you have a, a breakdown on that, uh, Declan. Uh, but any thoughts, last thoughts from you, Kerry? Uh, I think it's still early in the conference, but the main takeaway for me so far has been uh, it's been lovely catching up with some of our previous visiting fellows to Peter McCullum uh, and making some new friends as well. And hopefully we'll see everyone together again for the Prostic Preceptorship next year in March. Yeah, Michael, do you want to put in a shameless plug for the Prostic Preceptorship? I think Ken is coming down to Melbourne for the Prostic meeting next oh, yes, year. The, the 2024 Prostic Preceptorship Extravaganza. I've brought a whole bunch of flyers. Ken's an in invited speaker, and the number of invited speakers is is growing. We have Mike Sathetje from uh, South Africa 
uh, coming out and uh, other colleagues from uh, USA. So it's going to be a great meeting in March next year. Visit prostic24.org. There you I'm go. My one-year-old son, so he needs to learn early about uh, prostate cancer. Fantastic. Look, that's great. Well, thanks very much for uh, joining us live from Vienna. We really appreciate it. Uh, Michael, Ken and Kerry, enjoy the rest of the meeting. We'll put some links in the show notes for Prostic and indeed to EANM, which is a fantastic organization. Um, that's all we have time for on this episode of GUCast. I hope you do enjoy these conference highlights. I must say I really enjoy them. Now we're out and about again. We look forward to bringing you a couple more in the next month. I'll be at the European Robot Meeting in a couple of weeks and in Milan as visiting professor as well. So more podcasts coming. Uh, talk to you soon.